Welcome to the Tribe of Testimonies. Here you will find conversations with faithful Native American members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, sharing their stories and their love of the Savior. My name's Andrea Hales. I'm Navajo, and I'm glad that you've decided to come and join us today. My guest today is Levi Hepri. I don't recall meeting him when I was at BYU, but I knew his parents when I was at BYU. And it's funny because when I met him as a grown man, I was like, oh, yeah, you're totally your parents' son. <laughs> I'm really glad that he spent some time with me and did this this uh, conversation. He's really great. He's doing a lot of good. And I hope that as you listen to this conversation, you can feel that he is trying to share our Savior's love. I hope that that's what we're all seeking to do and that we are all keeping our focus celestial. Think celestial, right? So here is Levi. I hope you enjoy this conversation. I'm on the phone today with Levi Hepri. Um, Levi, would you please introduce yourself in your tribal way as much as possible? If it's in your language, great. If it's not, that's fine. Not everybody speaks their language, and some languages are dead. Yeah, for sure. Thanks so much for having me on. My name's Levi Hepri, a Mohawk Native American, specifically from the Bear Clan, um, a part of the Iroquois Confederacy. My mother is Elaine Cole, and her mother is Charlene Benedict. Um, so happy, very happy to be here. Yeah, and and you're also Maori from your father's side, right? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yes. So, um, Levi, would you please share something that you love about your heritage as it relates to the gospel of Jesus Christ? It can be pretty much anything, a story, celebration, way of life, a ceremony. What do you love about your heritage as it relates to the gospel? I, there are so many things, um, you know, and I'll try not to rant about all of them, but I think for me, my heritage, you know, specifically my native heritage, um, has given me really a great lens to view the gospel through. And I think that's been important for me. I think sometimes the narrative, and, and I totally get why it comes about, is that, you know, Christianity and indigenous peoples are, are kind of at opposite ends. But that really has been the lens that I viewed the gospel through, you know, from you look at those opening pages of the Book of Mormon, talking about, you know, among the principal ancestors of the Lamanites. And, and I grew up, you know, thinking that. And so reading the Book of Mormon was something that was important to me because it wasn't just another, you know, random book with these and thous, but it was a, a book of, you know, history for me. And so I think, um, so many places, you know, within my own culture where I, I just, I think of that scripture, all things denote that there's a God. And I just see that, you know, with, whether it's within the long houses and the spiritual um, significance that they held within my people. And that's in, in some ways, ways that I've become able to understand the temple and the importance of the temple in my life. And when I look about like the histories and legends of, you know, the forming of the Iroquois Confederacy, they talk about a peacemaker 
right? The tribes were at war and they were fighting with each other and a peacemaker came um, and taught them a better and a higher way, right? Um, one not of war, but one of collaboration, one of taking care of each other. Um, and I think, you know, things get lost in translation, but it talks a little bit about um, how this peacemaker encouraged them to be, you know, knit together, have their hearts met in unity. And and for me, it's it's impossible to hear those types of things. And, you know, you kind of raise an eyebrow like, oh, I, I've heard that before, you know, and and so I think kind of bouncing back and forth all my life, it's just, you know, I read something, particularly in the Book of Mormon, and then I learn a little bit more about my culture. Generations is something I think about as well. Um, just in the connection to the past, you know, the Iroquois and Mohawk, you know, had something talking about, you're always looking forward seven generations, the decisions that you make. Um, is this going to benefit and still be important seven generations later? And I think about, you know, the amount of things that we do in the church where you're just laying a foundation and groundwork, you know, saying, like, I'm going to try and make a difference, but I really want to make a difference for my kids, for my grandchildren, for my great-grandchildren. Um, and I just see so many parallels back and forth that, um, and, you know, it's been all my life seeing those. And so it's been kind of a cool thing to bounce back and forth and see those. Yeah. Um, so you were talking about the Book of Mormon for just a minute. I started reading it backwards recently because I finished it. And oh. so, so I'm oh. like, I'm going to try something different. So I'm reading it backwards. And um, I just I just am really grateful for all the times that it says to my Lamanite brethren or to the layman like, like, there are parts, even, okay, I I even recently noticed this about uh, Moroni's promise at the end. It literally says, to the Lamanites, this promise. It doesn't say, to all the world, this promise. But, of course, it, it applies to all the world. But it's funny. I'm like, oh, yeah. It does literally yeah. say, this promise is to the Lamanites. And I'm like, yeah. Yeah. I love that. Yeah. And I, I think about that, too, when... um. I had one of those moments when I was reading like in Enos, right? In the book of Enos. And we all know he's the guy who prayed all day and night. And sure, he starts praying and then um, receives, you know, forgiveness of his sins. But then we sometimes forget that the next part that he prayed for were specifically his Lamanite brethren. Yeah. And he's like, I, I want them to have a record. I want them to have the truth, you know? And and I know there's lots of people who who brought that to pass, but then the Lord promising, like, I will preserve this record for your brethren so that they'll be able to be brought to the truth. And yeah. I've always, I remember years ago when I found that, I was like, thanks, Enos. I know, right? Like, <laughs> that's awesome. Like, I can't even imagine, you know, I can't even sit in a movie all day or, you know, lie in bed all day, much less pray for an entire day. But thank you for for thinking I and, and that's what I like to think about thinking about us you know in, in the future days that we would have the truth yeah I totally love it I love all those things that you said now I need to learn more about longhouses too <laughs> <laughs> yeah they're they're amazing and you know lots lots of symbolism and things and 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 for me it's just been trying to piece together in a similar way of the temple you know it's like there's not any type of 
grand authoritative things of like, this is what this means. This is what this means, you know? Um, some of it is just piecing together the history and learning and, and it's amazing the parallels and things that come from, from these cultures. Cause again, I think, you know, whether, um, you know, whether or not you're, you're a part of Christianity or those types of things, I really do think it's like all things to note that there's a God, that there was a great spirit, that there is one, you know, and, and that he's guiding all of these types of things. Yeah, I totally agree. Well, so Levi, were you raised as a member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints? I was, yeah. So I um, was grateful for it. So on my dad's side, there something like four or five generations in the church, you know, um, had, had been baptized when some of the first sets of missionaries had come over to New Zealand. Um, and then my mom and her parents are all converts to the church. Um, and, you know, really cool experience. I was, I was talking with my mom the other day and she reminded me how um, her dad had found the church and it, they the the story in my family goes that it's due to the him oh my father because he was walking you know around on on the reservation walking by this this little like church house and heard male voices singing this song and he was like oh i kind of like that song what is it and it was the missionaries during the week they were practicing a song um, and it was on oh, my father and, you know, what I, the, the details of the exchange, I, I don't know beyond that point, other than somehow as all good missionaries do, they, they had managed to talk with him and say like, you know, if you like that song, you'll like some of the other things that we're going to be talking about. And, you know, he was able to bring them over to his parents and, and talk and teach. And there were ups and downs, you know, and um, some of those implications, you know, cause when you layer on, You've got, you know, your native heritage. And then I think his parents were like mixture of Catholic and Methodist. And then you layer on. Now now you're joining this other cult, you know. It's <laughs> a lot of different pieces. But yeah, so he, um, he was baptized. And then later on, uh, the rest of my family, you know, my mom and her siblings were all baptized into the church. That's so cool. So uh, where did you grow up? So I grew up uh, pretty much in Provo, Utah. Provo is w what I call home. My parents met at BYU and stopped me if you've heard that story before, but they, they met there and, and then they never left. And um, so for the most part, I've got a couple cousins that are out here, but my parents and then my siblings, my wife and my kids out here and still a vast majority of our family, either back on the reservation in upstate New York or back in New Zealand. Yeah, that's cool. So you you were raised as a member of the church. You grew up in Provo. You're you're still living in Utah Valley, yeah. Yep, I down in Spanish Fork. Yeah. So, um, what do you do while you're living there? Like, you're yeah. you're married, and you have mm -hmm. how many children do you have? Two kids, two both boys, ages five and two, and they are giving us a run for our money. <laughs> I, was, I was telling my wife the other day, I was like, you know, marriage and kids is such an interesting thing because it's like you find somebody that you love and you're like, cool, I, I want to spend eternity with this person. And then you get this great idea like, I think I would like to make small copies of myself that will <laughs> yell, at, yell at me and kick me in the shins. I, I think that would be the best thing for my mental health. <laughs> and I was like, oh, man. <laughs> 
I had a friend once who was like, you know that curse that parents put on their kids? Someday you're going to have a kid just like you. She's like, this was my friend. She's like, the problem with that curse is your spouse may be an actually... <laughs> that, well, and and that's the thing is my my wife bless her and her family's heart they they're all so great I look up to them so much they they have such a good example they one of the only families I've ever heard that when they were asked to take out the trash they just did it without complaining or yelling or or anything like that and You're so like, that's possible now, <laughs> yeah now now it's just a weekly thing of you know my wife's like can you believe that our child did that I'm like. I have to tell you something that is, that is my fault. Yeah. I, I did that when I was younger. And then the next week it's like, can you believe they did this? It's like, I need to tell you a story. And this is my fault. This is it coming back. And it's like, this is, you didn't ask for this, but this is what's happening now. That's super funny. <laughs> yeah. It's unfortunate, uh... but yeah. <laughs> anyway. Um, yeah. So I, so living down here with my wife and kids, um, and I currently work for Deseret Book. Um, I'm the director of intercultural strategy. Um, and so I, in a nutshell, I oversee all of our efforts um, to try and help Deseret Book, its products, its employees, its mission and stuff, uh, be more reflective of a worldwide church. And I think that's one of the things um, and it was kind of a strange journey getting there. Um, yeah, I think, tell us about it. Yeah, so so growing up, um, I I think like most people, right, when we, we hear these like inspirational speeches and stuff of like, I knew what I wanted to do. I, I had no idea what I wanted to do um, ever when I went to college. Um, I had an abysmal first year, which I think is pretty typical. Um, went on my mission to St. Louis and then came back. And um, it, it wasn't so much of a, what would I like to do with my life? As much as a, how can I survive and get out of this college thing with the, with a degree? And so I just started, I pulled up a list of every major. And then I removed any major that had math or science because I decided <laughs> I was terrible at math or science, which when you do that, it doesn't leave you with a ton of majors. <laughs> And so then I went through and just, this is terrible, but I went through and I just like looked at like credit hours and like, what's the fastest I can get out of here? What's a degree that looks good? Um, and settled on a degree in communications. And, and the deciding factor for me was like, well, if I go in for a job interview and somebody looks at that degree, they'll be like, oh, cool. We need someone who can communicate. So this feels like a good major to me. Um, but I feel like that was most of my undergrad degree. Um, but I, I think at the core of it, I knew that I wanted to do something um, that was true to myself, right? That, that helped connect me with my native heritage, with my Maori heritage, you know, both being indigenous. Um, and I never really saw the path forward for that um, until I met my wife. She was a sociology major, you know, and thankfully she, um, I really give a lot of credit to her for helping me see because um, I, I had no idea what sociology was. I had no idea what any of these things were. I had lived experience, you know, being indigenous. I, I knew growing up in Provo that I was different than others. I really didn't know how to put that to words. 
until I'd be talking with her as we'd be dating and she'd be like, oh yeah, that's, that's like a term. It's, it's called this, you know, I'd be like, oh, okay. It's like, oh, that experience that you've shared and why that was so difficult, that also has another term and, and it's this. Be like, whoa, this is kind of cool. And then she was the one I didn't realize now uh, you know, she laughs about it because she was trying to feel it out. I was that typical, you know, college student. I was playing rugby. That was kind of my priority. And she brought up, um, she's like, so what do you want to do in life? And and she was, of course, trying to suss out, like, are you worth sticking around for? Like, am I going to be, you am know, I or, be what, the are... <laughs> <laughs> well, what, what are we doing here? And I was like, and it was the first time I'd ever vocalized. It's like, I really want to like help my people, you know, and my tribe in specific, but also, you know, that larger community of indigenous and, you know, those who are typically on the margins. Um, and she said, well, you should look into this program where you can go and get some couple years of teaching and in, like inner cities experience. Um, and so I ended up doing that, you know, obviously my wife and I ended up getting married. So I went out to Oklahoma um, and I taught elementary school in some of the inner cities for a little bit. Um, and that was a really good on the ground, eye opening, bless every teacher's heart throughout the entire world, because I was awful at that. <laughs> but, you know, and just seeing, I think like 10, 20 percent of my class was homeless um, you know, English was not a primary language that they spoke, um, had uh, a fair amount of native students as well, very, very good native population out there in Oklahoma. And it was just this melting pot of just every type of trauma and barrier and stuff. And these, these kids were first grade and fifth grade, you know, that I was teaching. And it was like, I, and just the mental toll it took on me to be like, I don't know how to help you through this. Like, you know, I'm, I'm trying my best here. And, and I think that was a really important, you know, kind of signpost for me being like, this is hard work, but I think this is something that you need to keep doing. So I had the opportunity to get a master's degree from the university of Oklahoma um, and simultaneously started working um, for the school of social work out there. Um, and, you know, as, as is typical in my life, the, first day on the job, I found myself Googling, what is social work? You know, I, I had no idea how I, they gave me the job, but I was Googling it out there like, okay, here's my job. I should probably know what this is. <laughs> um, and found, you know, in, in that way that the Lord helps you kind of go from place to place as long as you're moving, that social work was all about helping those on the fringes, helping those who are often marginalized. Um, and my job specifically, I'd help students coordinate their practicums and internships. So, you know, they've, and they, they don't realize how dumb it was that they hired me, but they would send me to like the hospitals and different places. And I would negotiate with them and say, well, we, we have like five undergrad students we'd like to place here in your internship. Um, and, and I'd help them with that and kind of work with a lot of the different students. Um, and so after that, you know, I, f I feel like had some opportunities um, to come back to BYU. Um, I think I had enjoyed, you know, my time working at public universities, got some good experience, and then went back to BYU, um, specifically in admissions and, and recruiting. 
and that was another type of thing. You know, just kind of got thrown into it, started traveling all around the country, meeting with students, talking to them about the importance of college. Um, and, and it was nice. I had supportive bosses um, who also supported, you know, different communities who are marginalized. And I was able to schedule different trips, you know, whether it be down to, uh, you know, Navajo Reservation and places where typically what, what I would hear often was, uh, I, you can go there, right? But I, I don't know that you'll get a lot of interest or applicants, you know, that, that will want to come to BYU. And my question back to people who would say that would be, um, well, when was the last time we went there? It was like, oh, maybe 15 years ago. And it's like, do, do you think that maybe there's no interest because we haven't been there in a while? Like, that's, you know, it, it was kind of a, a chicken and egg type of thing where it's like you, you want a lot of chickens, but you're not willing to, you know, to do the work up front. And so, but again, thankfully, I had some supportive bosses and stuff. So I found myself again, you know, traveling through inner cities and you know Native American reservations and border towns and different things um, to try and talk about education. Sure, BYU, but also education in general, talking about this is the primary tool that a lot of us have in communities, as many barriers as there are to maybe try and remove some of those barriers and get a leg up. Um, and it was just, just kept adding to those different experiences. Um, had the chance to go and work over in the multicultural office um, where I helped coordinate their um, college prep program, SOAR, and then all the different cultural celebrations, Luau, Fiesta, Powwow. Um, and that was, you know, very fulfilling. I feel like I was able to connect um, a lot, you know, with my people and, and, and really make a difference. And then amongst all of that um, stuff, um, when I was at BYU, I had the opportunity, uh, Laurel Day, who's the president of Deseret Book, had reached out. And she said, you know, we're putting together a an advisory committee of diverse individuals you know i'd like you to consider sitting on this committee so i was like oh, okay i'm I'll, I'll be interested in it i was pretty upfront with her and um, i was like i have been into a deseret book i think twice in my life and i'm pretty sure both times were to buy garments at the distribution center <laughs> <laughs> you know i was like, so i just just want to be upfront in case you think i come with any type of great knowledge of deseret book um, and she's like, that's totally fine. That's exactly what we're looking for, you know. Um, so I'd been consulting just with them on the side for a little bit. Um, and then Laurel had reached out and she said, hey, um, I have this position, you know, director of intercultural strategy. I really want you to consider taking this position. Um, and she was very upfront, you know, and, and talking about Deseret Book and saying, you know, for a long time, we've not been true to our mission. And, and part of the mission of Deseret Book is to help all Latter-day Saints in every stage of their journey. She's like, we do a good job of hitting those in the Mountain West, you know, Arizona, Utah, Idaho. She said, but even within there, there's a lot of stories that we're not telling. And there's a lot of faith-building stories from different communities that we're not telling. Um, and so I, I thought about that. And, you know, this goes back to maybe my earlier comments about generations. It, at the end of the day, it was my kids, you know, when I would look at them 
that made the difference for me in taking the job because it was like, you know, I, I, it, it wasn't a bad childhood by any means, right? But I didn't have books where characters looked like me. Um, I went to church and heard the same pioneer stories over and over again. You know, and again, not saying that they were bad, but it was just kind of like, and I, I remember specifically, you know, as a youth when our stake was prepping for track, um, I wasn't old enough to go, but all of the activities that summer were in line for track. Um, and I remember everyone was so excited because, okay, so today's youth activity, you're going to bring, you know, the names of some of your ancestors who crossed the plains um, and you're going to learn about them and potentially you can role play as them, you know, when you pull your hand card across. And it was kind of like, huh, what? I go home and, you what know, but, yeah, <laughs> yeah and, and my leaders were great. You know, they loved me and they cared, but it was kind of like, I don't know how to put to words why I feel kind of bummed about this activity. And I just assume it's I'm, I'm just a bratty teenager or something, right? But then you're sitting there, it's like, my ancestors didn't cross the plains, you know, they, um, it's, you know, and so sit there in activities and it was those types of moments looking at my kids and thinking, you know, there could be a chance here for me to make an impact, you know, for those within my community and help bring some of these stories. Right. And because again, that's sometimes there's that view of the church that it's just like, it's very Western United States, white centric, you know, you look at the leadership and, you know, there's all these things that either are unsaid or people have outright said. And I was like, you know what, this could be a really cool opportunity to, to make a difference. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So you, you now work with Deseret Book and what kind of things are you doing with them? Like, I mean, I understand what you, you're seeing that didn't happen, but what are you doing that is happening? Yeah, yeah. So it's been, I've been working there since February. Um, and I have the great blessing of being able to bounce around to different teams. Um, you know, that was also what I had told, um, you know, Laurel and the other vice presidents when we were talking about the job. I was like, in addition to only going, you know, uh, into Deseret Book twice. Um, I've also only ever worked for nonprofits, you know, in, in higher ed and universities. So just maybe keep that in mind, right? Like if, if you're looking for somebody to make you billions of dollars, maybe I can do that in a couple of years, but I, you know, <laughs> that, that's not my typical skill set here. And they're like, that's totally fine. Um, so at first, you know, it's been a lot of bouncing around from team to team, whether it's our teams that make books, whether it's our teams that make podcasts, that make artwork, any other types of products. And it is trying to take a comprehensive look at, you know, how do we recruit employees? How do we onboard employees? How do we support employees? Do we have systems in place that support employees from a, a wide range, not just like races and ethnicities, but abilities? Um, when we think, you know, about traditional pay gaps and different things of like women between genders and stuff. Are we making a place that's inclusive for more than just your typical business person in a suit? Right. Um, so it's jumping around to different teams, helping them consider, 
you know, how to onboard different content creators from different communities to tell different stories, how to be sensitive in telling some of those stories, right? Because we all know that can go very, very wrong, very, very fast. Um, how to market those different opportunities. Um, and then I, so I do that for our team domestically as well. And then I'm also in charge of helping our business develop the strategy to launch internationally. Um, so we have lots and lots of plans to take Deseret Book um, to international markets. And then one of the cool things about my, that's why we specifically named the title Intercultural Strategy, um, is we wanted it to denote some back and forth between cultures. So not that we would just find Brazilian authors to write books for Brazilian audiences. There's certainly a need and an aspect of that. But to then bring some of those stories back into our U.S. market, um, you know, for maybe native Portuguese speakers or even anybody who's looking for these stories, right? We use the term pioneer a lot. And we think about those um, crossing the plains. And we're not always focusing on there were pioneering efforts, huge pioneering efforts going on for the church across the world. Um, and the idea is to start gathering some of those stories and, you know, helping that be a benefit not only to those people, but those people here who are sitting, you know. And, and I love that idea because we, we sit around and think that it's like, oh, you know, a sacrament meeting in the church looks this way. And then you go outside the country and there are elements certainly that are the same, you know, the sacrament prayers. But then there's a lot of differences that I think every culture would benefit from There's a lot of parenting practices, right? I, you know, ever since having kids, it's like I probably read like five different parenting books trying to get a handle on, you know, these children and figure out what, it, what in the world we're different. doing. <laughs> yeah, they all are. And one of the cool things that I've learned is I've been able to draw not just from my wife and, you know, the way that she grew up, but from my dad and his culture and from my mom and her culture and it just feels empowering that it's like, well, I wonder if there's stuff I can learn from those in Mexico. I wonder if there's stuff I can learn from people in Canada and how they parent and, and how they structure things. Um, so in short, it's, it's trying a little bit of everything, whether it's policies or products. Um, and it's, it can be slow moving at times, but we're kind of seeing some awesome opportunities rise up. Cool. That's super cool. Um, have there been any like little miracles that have happened along the way that you're like, Oh, this is so cool. Emily father is definitely in the works here. Yeah. One of the things, um, you know, and I know you had an opportunity to attend. We were, um, we, the last couple of years have done kind of a spin on pioneer day in which, um, you know, pioneer day again, when you think about it, very traditional, those who came across the plains. Um, and so it started with honoring the Vanguard Company, which included black pioneers like Green Flake, um, and the dedication of um, that monument that went up, I think it was two, two years ago, three years ago. Um, and really focusing on what are the stories that have traditionally gone untold? Right, of some of these people, you know, Jane Manning James, who have done so much. And so when I had come on, on board, you know, we were doing a great job of that. And then 
for me, there was always this glaring hole, right? And, and because of my upbringing where it's like, okay, I have never once heard Pioneer Day celebrated or talked about in the context of the impact that it had on the Native people who were already here. Right? And I think sometimes we think about that, that the pioneers came across the plains, they looked left and right, and it was just a wide open expanse, untouched, you know, there's just the wild west is like what we like to talk about. And it's like, there were people here, they had established settlements, they had government, they had art, they had music, they had culture, they had all of these different things. And we don't get to hear about that. Um, and so that was one of the you know awesome opportunities is thankfully Darren Perry, you know, from the Shoshone Nation joined us and, and talked about something that's written in his book about the Bear River Massacre. And I just remember, you know, standing on the hill and listening to him, you know, and, and I could, you know, in, in a little bit feel my ancestors smiling, you know, at me being like, man, if you had told me all the way back when I was in college, just trying to sort through which majors were the easiest to get through, that one day I'd be able to stand here and have a hand in telling the stories of some of our people, you know, it's like that, that felt like a huge miracle and, and something that I was like, wow, that, that means a lot and, and meant a lot that Heavenly Father is mindful, right, of his people, specifically Israel, and is mindful of them and watches over them and brings them forth, you know, in his time. Yeah. I think for me, you know, back to some of the thoughts that I had, had put, I think there's a lot out there. There's just very, very polarizing things out in the world right now. Um, you know, I, you can't even, when, even when I talk about my job at Deseret Book, you know, if I ever want to panic, you know, members of my ward, sometimes I'll tell them exactly what I'm involved in. Like, whoa, 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 whoa. That sounds, that sounds kind of scary. Like you're, like you're, you know, like, Right. Uh, but I, I want you to hear, you know, what I'm actually doing. And, and I think with all of those different things, you know, it can be easily to get divided into different camps, you know, one way or the other, that it's like, you know, I, you know, it's, I, oh, definitely, I, I support Native American people, you know, and, but I, I, I don't know about all these initiatives, you know, that, that I'm hearing about, and it kind of makes me afraid. It's like, okay, I understand that. Um, but I think just with all that polarization and stuff is, is remembering that we are all part of that same family. And I think that's something that I've seen um, throughout my career and work because the stories, you know, and, and at first I thought it was just the connection between my two cultures. Um, even though, you know, my, my dad growing up in New Zealand, my mom growing up in New York, I think the distance is something like 10,000 miles apart, right? Um, it is incredible to me how many traditions and things are exactly the same, you know, and, and, and that's not coincidental to me. Um, and I thought it was just that, that I was like, oh, you know, maybe if you're reading the Book of Mormon, like you can see how they were splitting off from each other. Um, and then as I've come to interact with cultures across the world, you know, Hispanic, Latino, um, Black, Asian, Asian American, Pacific Islander, it is incredible to me 
and I know we, we say this, you know, we like to print it on Instagram and those types of things that it's like, we really are more similar than we are different. Um, and I think I've just seen that time and time again, where it's like, you know, even this week, um, we're, we're celebrating as a company, Dia de los Muertos. Um, and we brought in, um, you know, somebody from Guadalajara, Mexico, and she talked in a webinar about the importance and significance of Dia de los Muertos. And, um, you know, most people understand that from the side of Coco and what they've seen, you know, in that movie. And it's like, it was impossible for me not to sit there and be like, why, why isn't the whole church celebrating this holiday? I mean, this is to a T what we're trying to do for our ancestors, you know, and honoring them and remembering them and celebrating their lives and the lessons that they've taught to us, you know, and I've just, I've seen a lot of opportunities for divisions, you know, amongst people and especially cultures in the church, but more often than not, I see those similarities in those things where it's like, and, and to me again, you know, I don't ever want to appropriate someone's culture, but in seeing it's like, to me, that denotes that it came from the same being, you know, and that, that same respect for life, that colorfulness, that, you know, honoring through dance, through tradition, through ceremony, whether you call it ceremony or ordinance or faith or, you know, in, in Polynesian cultures, mana, you know, power, authority. There are so many of those different things that um, I think are just all part of the same wheel. You know, we, we might, that's, and that's often how I look at it is like spokes on a wheel is if we're focusing on our distance you know, apart from different spokes, it seems like, well, we're really different. But then when you draw it all into that same core, um, it's like, oh, this came from the same being. This came from the same entity. We all did different interpretations and riffs on it, but there is a higher power. We came from somewhere. We're here for a reason and we're going somewhere. And, and I think across time and cultures, there's been those types of, thoughts and beliefs you know all throughout there so i don't want to get too preachy but i yeah i I just think it's so cool i i actually really like that visualization you just gave about a wheel if if jesus is the center and you just said we're all going somewhere if there's gapes in that wheel then it makes it a lot harder to get where we need to go that wheel is broken yeah. Well, and you think about even in the New Testament, Paul talked about that, right? When he gave the analogy of the body of Christ mm-hmm. and he yeah. talks about that. He's like, some of us are hands, some of us are eyes, some of us are arms. And when we spend all the time being like, oh, I'm not an eye. It's like, right. We need you to be a hand. We need you to be a foot. We need you to be a leg. And the implication, just like that wheel, right? is very clear that it's like, as a church, as a people, as a community, as a country, whatever things you want to see, it's like, if we ever want to get anywhere, we do it with each other. Yeah, totally. I was also thinking about what you said about the seven generations, and and we also look back seven generations, and the pioneers thing. We do, as a church, tend to celebrate the pioneers that walked across. I mean, we should, because that's how we got our religious freedom basically but you're right we need to also celebrate the pioneers 
like your mother and her family who joined the church later, who have set off this seven generations in in this direction from your family. And and we've been told there are studies that say that if we know where we come from, we're stronger as individuals, right? So I think yeah. I think the church was doing that. I don't know if it was intentional or not, but doing that forever with the pioneers, just the the ones that trekked across the plains. This is why we're strong. This is this is where we came from. But you're right. We need to celebrate the the other pioneers, the ones that are. Um, this you're strong because of these people, and it doesn't have to be yeah. the pioneers that walked across the plains. Yeah, yeah, and even that you know analogy that you, I think there's you know some symbolism in Mohawk and Iroquois culture, you know, of a bundle of arrows, right, to being stronger than just one arrow. Yeah, you know, and and actually, when you look at like the official seal and logo of the United States, you'll notice that the eagle is carrying a bundle of arrows in its talons, and it's like. I wonder where you got that idea. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, um, what do you do in your ward right now? Are you, do you have a calling? Yeah, so I'm uh, in the bishopric currently. Oh yeah. So I get yeah. So that's also where I get a front row view of watching my children dive bomb my wife and be like, Ooh, <laughs> that. I remember that, and I'm really regretting doing that to my mom. <laughs> I'm so sorry. <laughs> well, maybe you should call somebody to be <laughs> the happy assistant. Yeah, there you go. And, you know, one of the things, and, and it might be, I maybe it ruffles some feathers, but I usually, they just come up and sit on the stand with me, you know, because it's oh, like. <laughs> I think that if there's anybody that can't handle that, they have forgotten their own children or they yeah. haven't had their children because I think every father in the in the bishopric has that right to have their children come yeah. sit with them <laughs> yeah well and that's where like we always laugh as a bishopric and it's just i'm I'm not some crazy radical trying to change anything but i'm like i've looked in the handbook and it's like i i'm not quite sure why i have to be sitting up here you know it's like <laughs> i most unless i'm conducting that makes sense most sundays i'm just raising and lowering the pulpit you know right and I'm and I'm like I'm not exactly sure why I have to be up here. Yeah, you know, but there's nothing that tells me my kid can't come and hang out with me. So yeah, that's, that's that's what they do. Totally agree. In fact, I I uh, I've seen one of our bishopric get off the stand before to just go help his wife because <laughs> they she needed help. I think that's totally appropriate. Family first, <laughs> yeah. right? Family first. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. And that's, well, and the other thing too, is it's like, I never want for my, I, I think the worst message I could send to my kids or to anyone else's kids is that it's like, there's a barrier between you and the people on the stand. Right. And it's like, I just, you know, I just foresee that not going well when they're teenagers. And I say, you should always feel comfortable to approach the Bishop. And they say, uh, 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 Remember those five years when you said we couldn't approach you, you know, during the, it's like, you're right. 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 And so trying to keep that open and being like, these seats are no more important than your seats. They, they, they happen to be physically elevated. So I guess people can see a little bit better, but it's like trying to keep that open and, you know, engaging in those conversations of like, 
never at any time is dad unapproachable. Maybe in the middle of while he's like sustaining people, could you not like kick him in the knees? You know, maybe we can work on that a little bit more. And, you know, it's not always your turn to talk in the microphone when dad is talking into the microphone. (laughs) You know, there's reverent things that we can maybe work on a little bit more. But I think trying to instill some of those things of like, this is your place too. This is somewhere where you should feel comfortable. And, you know, and like you said, it's like, we're a family church and there's, there's no point, you know, trying to pretend like our children don't yell and scream and hit and do all those things as they're, as they're growing and trying to learn. So I've been listening to leading saints. Have you heard of that podcast before? Uh-uh. It's it's a it's a great podcast. He uh, talks to both professionals and just regular lay people about different ways they have they are leaders in the church. Um, I was just wondering if there's any uh, unusual practices, like like you said, it doesn't mean that they're not in the in the handbook or whatever. What what kind of practices do you do in your bishopric that you might not typically hear of in other wards? <laughs> we're we are super unorthodox. We're we're a younger bishopric, um, and I credit most of this to our bishop. He's an amazingly humble man. I've told him this before. I was like, I've worked with a lot of people with very fancy titles in and out of the church, and I was like, and I still feel like you exemplify Christ the best that I've ever seen because he's very humble. Um, We got called midway through COVID um, and that was a wild, wild time to try and figure out. None of us had bishopric experience. All of us were pretty young, you know, and it was just that weird juxtaposition of, you know, the church started to make a lot of changes right before COVID and then everyone got out of practice of going to church and doing different things. And then when we came back, um, I'll, I'll credit my little brother for saying this. He came because I think I was blessing my oldest um, or maybe my second child. Um, so he came to watch that. And he said he's sitting on the bench and he turns to my mom and he's like, what the heck is Levi doing up on the stand? And she's like, he's in the bishopric. He's been in the bishopric for like two years. And he, he looks up, looks at all three of us. He's like, that's not the bishopric. He's <laughs> like, that looks like the bishopric got COVID and died. And those guys are filling in. <laughs> and, and so our, our greatest weakness in terms of we don't have a clue what we're doing, as we've also been able to turn into our strengths, because we do. It's just like there's a lot of times where it's like, well, interviews have traditionally gone like this for 50 years. We look at the handbook, it's like, huh, that's not a thing. We're, we're just going to kind of go this direction. When we make callings, um, we've tried to invest a lot more in voices, you know, in the ward. Um, maybe this, I don't know, maybe somebody will get me in trouble for this, but it's like, I think, pushing a lot of those callings down to different organizations and saying like, Relief Society, you know how to run the Relief Society. You just tell, you know, the handbook says, Apparently, we're the ones who have to extend the call and sustain them and set them apart. But in terms of the organization of the ward, the primary pretty much manages themselves and tells us, like, 
when to move people around. The Relief Society does, the young women. Um, and we've tried to, we've had a really good relationship, I think, with our young women's presidency as well. And I, I actually think they're actually the leaders of the ward in, in truth, you know, not, not joking because it's just been like, you know, hey, what if we did this? Oh, yeah, we've never thought about that. What if we do that? So ours is, if you were to, you know, bring the Harvard Business School to do a review of our leadership, it would probably be pretty abysmal <laughs> in terms of like, <laughs> you know, like, you know, outstanding talks. I don't know that I've heard any of us give really an outstanding talk. It's like amazing charisma and leadership skills. And we're usually disorganized and stuff more often than not. Um, but through the lead of our bishop, I think we've focused way less on the administration and policies and different things and more on, I mean, the amount of, we, we cancel a fair amount of meetings because it's like, let's not meet. Let's maybe go and find a youth who might be struggling and bring them some ice cream, you know, and that does nothing for trying to help you staff your callings. And, you know, sometimes the stake is like, come on, like you need to be having this meeting and that meeting, that meeting. It's like, okay, we'll try. But sometimes we feel like it's more helpful to go help this person over here. And we feel like, I don't know. And I think that's been one of the hallmarks is I can't, I've never once been able to picture the savior in a meeting, like never once in my life. I've tried to imagine him wearing a suit, sitting around a table and talking through an agenda. I, my mind just can't do it. I think he was always out there and that's what we've tried to do. I love that. I totally love that because it's about the people. It's not about the check marks. I have loved this conversation, Levi. It's been so fun to get to know you and to hear all the things that you are blessed to to participate in. Um, I have one final question. What does it mean to you to know that you belong to the tribe of Israel? Um, I... Israel, to me, has always represented a promise that is going to be fulfilled, right? Um, there's, there's so much talk, you know, when you talk about Abrahamic covenants, covenants in general, um, to me, it always comes down to a promise, you know, that um, the Lord looks after his people. And I think I've seen that in my life. He mentions that in the scriptures, you know, whether it's the isles of the sea, you know, he's, he's mindful of those, those people, um, which I think you can interpret as literally or just, you know, in a metaphorical sense that it's just like, even if you're just on a speck of land in the middle of the ocean, I know who you are and I have plans for you. Um, and I think those plans and those promises you know, the most exciting of them are the ones that we talk about in the church is, is of gathering Israel um, and that we're scattered, whether physically or um, whether in ideologies or politics or different things. There's, there's certainly a fair amount of Israel that's scattered, um, no matter how you interpret that word. Um, and, and to me, to be a part of Israel and to be of the house of Israel means that that promise will be fulfilled, that will be gathered, um, and that will be able to function, you know, like that fully functioning body or wheel or what other thing you'll see. And then I think really that's what the eternities are all about, is once we're all fully online and stop fighting with each other, 
then that'll be what takes us into the eternities as we go and uh, cruise the stars. I don't know. I don't know what the next life looks like. In my mind, it looks kind of like Star Wars, but that's not doctrinal. <laughs> you know, we can do some cool things. Yeah. Yeah, I totally agree. Thank you so much, Levi. It's been just delightful to, to spend this time with you. Yeah, thank you. Yesterday in church, um, we were talking in Sunday school about Hebrews. And our teacher is just, she's so great. And she's dynamic and she is willing to be taught. And I love that about her. Well, she, we were talking about some of the misconceptions that the writer of Hebrews was trying to, to resolve for the, for the Hebrew people that he was writing to. And so then our conversation turned and focused on misconceptions between Jesus Christ and Heavenly Father. What are some of the differences? Well, they are separate, distinct beings. And Heavenly Father does not micromanage our lives. He allows our Savior to be the intermediary between us. And you can see that as we pray to Heavenly Father through Jesus Christ's name. And we receive things, we receive revelation from Jesus Christ. Uh, that was in a recent general conference talk. Um, it was really interesting to talk about them as separate and distinct beings. I, the a couple times of reading the scriptures, reading the Book of Mormon, a few iterations of reading the Book of Mormon ago for me, I um, highlighted, it was after President Nelson asked us all to, as we read the Book of Mormon, to highlight any references to Heavenly Father and to Jesus Christ. And as I did that, I was like, why am I not separating also... Um, the Holy Ghost. So I was highlighting them each as separate individual colors because they're separate individual people, beings. And I was so grateful for the things that I learned about Heavenly Father and about Jesus Christ and about the Holy Ghost. Um, it was a really good exercise for me. And I... I don't know why it's been so easy for me to comprehend our Heavenly Father as our Father. And I, I've i always had an easy way of comprehending that Jesus was the one that did the atonement. But there are parts of those relationships that have been confusing for me. And I'm just grateful that I can know them distinctly and that they know me. Each of them know me. And I'm really, really, really grateful for that. And I challenge you, if you ha are having misconceptions or confusions, or you just haven't really thought about it before, to think about it. Because they want you to know them, and they know you. And I hope you're having a super wonderful, awesome day.
Tribe of Testimonies is not sponsored by the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. The music is a traditional hymn, Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing, arranged and performed by Kyle Forsyth. I would love to hear from you. I would love to hear how this podcast is affecting you. And I'm always looking for guests. If you or someone you know would be a great guest, you can reach me at tribeoftestimonies at gmail.com.